five. Um, a little bit of review here at the beginning, just because uh, we're getting started here uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, particularly the Beatitudes. Um, but I wanted to remind us, and we're going to talk about this multiple times uh, as we uh, um, go through the sermon, um, but the, the sermon itself can be broken down into three basic sections or, or divisions. Chapter 5, Jesus, even though the Beatitudes, uh, there's a lot after the Beatitudes, chapter 5, Jesus is dealing with our character. Uh, chapter 6, he is talking about our relationship with God. And then chapter 7 is our relationship with others. <clears throat> so as we unfold these truths and these layers we talked about last week, um, we start to, uh, hopefully, we'll start to see uh, a pattern starting to develop in our lives. Um, and again, I want to remind you that the, the sermon is not just a random uh, uh, series of feel-good statements or good wisdom filled sayings but everything that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount has a reason and a purpose and and I hope you don't get tired of me using the analogy of an onion but it is important that we understand that each one of them is dependent on the next or or no each one is dependent on the one previous um, so <clears throat> Monday when I was at the prison, I had four opportunities to to be able to minister to the to the inmates. One of the sessions, the second session, nobody showed up. So I <clears throat> I was sat around. I got to go to lunch a little early and and um, so uh, and then the fourth session. Uh, in the day, only two people showed up. So the first, the first and the third sessions, uh, we had we had normal services uh, for the for the guys. But the last session was really interesting because these it was just two guys, and instead of me trying to preach to two guys, which I don't know if you that, that that's really hard to do. Okay. Uh, <laughs> So we just sat down and we just started talking and they and they just they had a desire to talk about spiritual things because um, I want to I want to see how how I can say this um, they they get fellowship within the prison but because they're all inmates they don't really trust each other does that make sense uh, even though even though they're all believers well not not the whole prison but you know what I mean you know uh, you know they're fellowshipping with other believers <clears throat> um, when one of them presents a sermon or presents a gospel they it is it is easy for them to become hard to that and say hey you're you're no better than me so it's, it's hard for them 
to sit down and have deep theological discussions because they don't really they really don't trust each other. There's always that element of mistrust. Does that make sense? So anyway, <clears throat> this last the last session, uh, we just sat down and for an hour we just talked about spiritual things and they and they started asking me questions. And somehow we got on to Matthew chapter 5, and I explained to them that we're going through uh, uh, the Beatitudes and, and, and the, the Sermon on the Mount, but particularly right now we started uh, <clears throat> on the Beatitudes. And I, I talked to them, and I, and I, and I explained the, the onion thing, you know, the layers upon layers upon layers, and, and how all of these things build and and work together and and um they both had said wow we had we had never seen that before and so we we talked some more <clears throat> and then i asked them the question that i asked you last week and that is why are they called the beatitudes and neither one of them had a clue and i i and i gave them the same option that i gave you is it because all of them start with bless, bless this, bless that, and so on and so forth. And they're like, well, yeah, I guess. And, and I said, well, actually, the reason they're called the Beatitudes is because <clears throat> this is character building that God wants us to be. And you, you could, both of them, you could just see the light bulb goes on. And, and they were like... You, Wow, we're actually supposed to live like this? And I said, I said, yeah. And then I we we talked about the difference between the the be attitudes and the do attitudes. Remember when we talked about this? They are not the be attitudes. they're not the do, you know, don't you know <clears throat> it's the be attitudes. We are to live this way. And I, I asked him, I said, why, why is it not the do attitudes? And one of them, he says, he says oh, that's easy. He said, because if, if it was a, a list of things to do, when I got tired, I didn't feel like doing it, I wouldn't do it. But if I'm supposed to be these things, then I'm going to do it all the time. I said, exactly, Exactly. So we, we we had a chance to talk, and, and it was a great... So that is part of my testimony from earlier. I wanted to share it earlier, but I knew I was going to be sharing it here, so I didn't. But um, uh, in case you weren't here last week, I did want to read the G. Campbell Morgan quote again, uh, just because I, I think that this is important, uh, to understanding the Beatitudes. Uh, he says, <clears throat> or he, he wrote this, uh, in the three chapters here, we have the Magna Carta of the kingdom. This chapter opens with a great revelation of its supreme condition. Character is everything. Character is everything. And that's the very first thing that Jesus goes after is our character. So the, the point number one or the layer number one that we talked about last week uh, is the poor in spirit in verse three. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and for the work you do in our lives. And Lord, we are truly grateful and thankful for all that you do. And we ask that you would bless in a very special, very mighty way. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
So simply put, again, this is review, so I'm just going to go through this quickly. Uh, simply put, the poor in spirit is acknowledging our spiritual depravity. It is not uh, physical poorness, it is spiritual poorness. Uh, <clears throat> It is a person who genuinely recognizes their need for God. Um, <clears throat> we talked about the fact that when, when we have something to bring to the table, in reality, when it, when it comes to the things of God, we have nothing to bring. We are totally dependent on Him. The only thing we can bring is a willing heart to yield to him. And that is exactly what he's talking about here. And we, I gave you the example of Isaiah. Isaiah, uh, uh, early in his ministry, uh, he was preaching to the, to, the, to the nation of Israel and he was saying, woe, woe to the people that do this and woe to the people do this and woe to the people. But what did, what did Isaiah say when he came face to face with God? Woe is me. Isaiah chapter uh, 6 and verse 5, it says, And then, uh, then, uh, then said I, <clears throat> Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of, uh, of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> so again, when... when when Isaiah saw God, he realized how poor in spirit he truly was. <clears throat> Paul reacted very much the same way in Acts chapter 9 and verse 3 uh, through 6. And it says, And he, excuse me, and, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth. And heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. <clears throat> it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembled and, and, and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee, that thou, what, what thou must do. Again, both of these men, when they came face to face with God, in fact, every time, every account that you see somebody in Scripture, when they get face to face with God, that is their reaction. Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. Number two, layer number two. This is where we left off last week. So layer number two, let's look at verse four. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. <clears throat> layer number two, those that mourn. And right out of the gate, I want to ask you a question. And I want you to think about this. What kind of mourning needs to take place in order for God to bless someone. And I thought about this. What about someone who loses a loved one? Okay, isn't that a deep mourning? Okay, is that the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about here? 
Okay, I see a, a head going no over here. Okay, similar. Okay, well, how about this? I thought about this. What about what about the person who, in their heart of hearts, understands or does their best to understand what Jesus did for you and for me? Is that the kind of mourning that a person could do, mourn so much for what Jesus did for us? Is that the kind of mourning that this is talking about? Okay. There you go. There you go. It's not about it's not about somebody hurting us or somebody dying because you know the the reality is if 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 that person who dies knows the Lord, you're going to see him again. So there you know that we mourn and we miss them, but we're going to see them again. But I believe that the answer to verse 4 is buried in verse 3. When we get to the point, remember I told you this is like an onion and, and these layers all work together. When we get to the point that we are, we are poor in spirit, where we realize that we are nothing, the mourning here has to be connected to verse 3. And it has to be the person who is so, so deeply sorry and mournful over their sin that God says he'll bless. When is the last time? And, and when I realized this, a while back as I was studying, I came across this and I realized, I said, when is the last time that I mourned or cried over my sin to God? When's the last time? That's what he's talking about here. Your sin, does it break your heart? John Phillips wrote this. While the first beatitude has to do with what we are in, in our spirit, when the Holy Spirit begins his work and leaves us stripped and humbled in, in the presence of God, the second one has to do with that, uh, excuse me, with what we are in our soul when our spiritual nakedness and bankruptcy is revealed. We are plunged into a sorrowful uh, sorrow for our sin. The sorrow is for our sin and the sin we see around us. Sin that breaks God's heart as well as his laws. Sin that breaks our hearts. Those who, who's more, who, <clears throat> those who thus mourn are promised comfort. That is exactly the opposite of what the Jew, the, the Jewish Pharisees, how they used to live. When our sin and the sin of our nation, when is the last time you, you cried 
or were mournful over what's going on in Washington, D.C. Now, how many, now let me, let me ask you this. Don't, don't raise your hand. But I want you to think about this. You look on Facebook and people get mad about what happens in Washington, D.C. But how often does it break your heart? There's a big difference. There's a huge difference. But the Pharisees lived just the opposite. Again, who is Jesus' audience here? It's the Jews. We'll talk about this more when we get to it, but in Matthew chapter 6, okay, still, it's still part of the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll get to it, uh, we'll talk more about it <coughs> when we get to Matthew chapter 6. But Jesus uh, gives us a, sna- a snapshot of the heart of the Pharisees or the Jewish leadership, if you would, of the Jewish church. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, it says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt um, not be as the hypocrites are. <clears throat> For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward, but thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth thee in secret shall reward thee openly. And right out of the gate here in verse 5, can you go back to verse 5, please? In verse 5, right out of the gate, Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites. Right out of the gate, he calls them hypocrites because they would stand in the synagogues and they would stand on the corners of the street and they would pray these elaborate prayers and they would just say all these crazy things and, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like this person and and, and I give so much money and I do all these things. <clears throat> but Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. That is the exact opposite of what they were being taught in the synagogues. The Pharisees were full of pride and arrogance. Not one ounce of humility and definitely no regret for their sin. There's a story that Jesus tells, or, or, or we, we see in the, in the New Testament, where Jesus is in the synagogue and, and a Pharisee is praying and he's, and he's, and he's saying, and he says, and, and I, thank, thank you, God, that I'm not like one of those. And he points at a, at a, at a publican. And then what does the publican do when he, when he prays or she prays? I can't remember, was it a he or she? Yeah, I'm sure it was a he. Anyway, what does he do? He bows his head and he beats his chest. He says, I am unworthy. See, that is what God is looking for. Humility and mournful, mournful spirit over, over our sin. We need to discover. We need to discover. And I, and I say we because I am including me in this. We need to discover what it means to mourn over our sins as an individual, as a church, 
and as a nation. I think I think mourning is is a lost element in our society today. Sin is flaunted in our faces today. If you don't believe me, turn on the turn what my dad used to call the idiot box or the TV. Just turn on the TV. Sin sin has been normalized. And people who stand for right are being made fun of. When's the last time? Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 and 38. It says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and uh, stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often have I excuse me, would I have gathered my children together even as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wings and ye were not. Behold, your house is is left unto you desolate. That's a sad portion of scripture. I have a picture for you. Chris, please. William Wilberforce. Anybody know who William Wilberforce is? That's a hard name to say, by the way. Okay? Anybody know who William Wilberforce is? If you know who he is, raise your hand. Okay, my wife knows. Okay, you know? Okay, three three of you know? Okay, Ashley knows. Okay. Nicole, who is he? Okay, he, he, he was the driving force in Britain... That that stopped slavery uh, in the nation of in the nation of uh, 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 Britain. Um, he lived 1759 to 1833. Uh, <clears throat> his pastor. Anybody know who his pastor was? <laughs> what would you say? Oh, okay. The guy who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton. Yes, John Newton was his pastor. Okay, <clears throat> I found out something interesting. Now, I, I, I've I've known for years that he was the one who was instrumental in bringing slavery to an end in the in the in the in the the, the nation of of uh, Britain, but. I just learned this. Before he started his campaign to abolish slavery, he broke down and wept for the depravity of his nation. See, he was brokenhearted and mourned over the over the depravity of his nation. And it was that it was that mournful spirit they gave him the energy and the willpower to tackle the slave trade. And what he accomplished was, was amazing. Absolutely amazing. If, you've, if you ever want to watch the movie Amazing Grace, it is an incredible movie. In fact, I've got it. If you want to watch it, just let me know. I'll, I'll let you watch it. It is an incredible movie about this man's life. 
but it started with him being broken over the depravity of his nation. Not over the depravity of slavery, but over the depravity of his nation. And his, his driving force, the thing that, that drove him, uh, and the, the, the movie kind of leaves this out, but the thing that drove him to, to do what he did was he was fearful of the, of the Lord's punishment on the nation that he loved so much. And he felt like that if he did not do everything he could, that the judgment of God would come on the nation that he loved so much. I have a couple of quotes here from William Wilberforce I wanted to share with you. A private faith that does not act in the face of opposition is no faith at all. Or, or, uh, oppression, excuse me. Same thing. <laughs> <clears throat> I love that quote. God Almighty has sent has set before me two great objects the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners or we could say instead of the word manners there <clears throat> morals see his 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 goal was two pronged he wanted to reestablish a nation that had a good set of morals but he also wanted to, to eliminate the slave trade. When's the last time you mourned over our nation and some of the things that have taken place in our nation just in the past few years? Yeah, I, I, those of you that will follow me on Facebook, I put up a different quote. It was a, it was not this one. It was something else. I, I purposely picked a different one um, so that I wouldn't be repeating myself. But um, William Wilberforce was a man who loved his country and whose heart was broken for his country and thus drove him to do great things for the cause of Christ. He was not a preacher. He was a politician. But he loved his country, and he loved God. And he was broken because of the sin of his nation. Do we mourn over our sin? Or do we just shrug it off and say, Ah, I'm just human. I'm allowed to sin. I'm allowed to make mistakes. Two weeks ago, when I introduced the Sermon on the Mount, I gave you five details that I told you we would be rehearsing throughout the, 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 the series. And I want to kind of revisit them. And I want you to, as we read through these five, did, did I give those to you for the slide? No, I'm sorry. I should have. Um, uh, as, we, as, we read, as, I, as I read through this list of five things, I want you to see, I want you to ask yourself, uh, as just the first two Beatitudes, just the first two, how many of them are connected with the, the, five, the five things I gave you 
a couple of weeks ago. The first one, number one, we must understand the mind of the preacher. Yeah, the preacher of the sermon, uh, uh, or, or the mind of Jesus, okay? we need. So the first two, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are they that mourn. Do you see the mind of God there? Absolutely. The next one, we must understand that he is our Savior before he is our teacher. Again, we must understand that the, that the sermon uh, causes conflict in the hearts of natural men. Boy, uh, those two things absolutely cause conflict. The fourth one is we must understand that the sermon is not the law of the New Testament. That, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not, this is not a list of do's. It is bees. And number five, we must understand that the key to the sermon is humility. And I definitely can see that in the first two. Number three, layer number three. And Chris and I were actually talking about this just tonight. <clears throat> The meek. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To understand this layer, okay, again, you have the poor in spirit, the mourning, now you have the meek. In order to understand this, we have to define the word meek. And, And this is what Chris and I were talking about tonight, because, you know, what the word meek meant 2,000 years ago is different than it means now. In our society today, uh, this, is what, this is how I would define it, is gentle or mild, right? And that's kind of how we think of the word meek today. Although it, it encompasses that, it means so much more. Uh, Jesus described himself as being meek and lowly. In uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, it says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly or humble in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. I came across a definition here, so I wanted to, to share this with you from uh, uh, another commentator's name, Matthew Henry. And I, I believe he, he defines the word meek very, very well. This is how he defines the word meek. One who can bear provocation without being inflamed by it. Okay? Um, are, either, uh, are either silent or return a soft answer. And one who can show their displeasure when there is an occasion for it without being transported into any uh, in, in, indecencies, <clears throat> excuse me, who can be cool when others are hot. Now, I'm sure that's talking about tempers, okay? <laughs> um, uh, and in their patience, keep uh, possession of their own soul. In other words, they don't lose their tempers when they can uh, scarcely keep possession of anything else. 
They are the meek who are rarely and hardly provoked, but quickly and easily pacified. And who would rather forgive 20 injuries than revenge one, having the rule over their own spirit? So really, this word meek here, I I think he really sums it up pretty good here at the end here. It says, having rule over their own spirit. The word meek here is a is it, 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 it is it is a person who carries number one a lot of respect. Somebody who has that inner strength that they don't have to say or do things to get people to respect them. You just automatically respect them. That is this word meekness. It is that inner that inner strength. That everybody, you know, you know, back when when I was a kid, there was a popular commercial, uh, and it said, "When E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens." Why? What were they trying to do? It was a commercial. But the truth is this: there are certain people in our lives that don't say a whole lot, but when they do talk, everybody listens. That is what this word meekness is. When I think of the word meekness, I almost always go back to a, an, an incident in John chapter 2. It was early in Jesus' ministry. Obviously, John chapter 2 it would have to be. <coughs> but in John chapter 2, Jesus does something that I have found to be very interesting. And I shared this with the guys in the prison because we were talking about meekness, and they were asking me, well, give me an example of meekness. And, I, and I, immediately I thought of the story, and, and I shared it with them. And in, in John chapter 2, in verses 13 through 15, it says, And, and <clears throat> the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves uh, and the changers of money sitting And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changer, uh, the the changers of uh, uh, money and overthrew the tables. Now you, you think, wait a second, wait a second. That is Jesus losing his temper. Okay. Uh, I had a, I was witnessing to a young man one day um, and and he said he said something something was said and he said even Jesus sinned and i said yeah i don't think so and he said yeah he said well, he lost his temper when he went in in that temple thing and turned over and started beating up all those people and and all this stuff and and i'm like whoa 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 back up back, back the bus up okay number 1 Jesus never sinned i said but number 2 i said you need to understand something here what is taking place? You, you talk to me. What, what is, the, what is the, the setting that's taking place here? Okay, it says here it's the Passover, right? So what's taking place? Okay, greed in the house of God. Okay, okay you have to understand, at Passover, what happened to the city of Jerusalem? Okay, it would... Okay, yeah, it would, 
the, the size of Jerusalem would quadruple. And people f- would travel from all over the world to Jerusalem for Passover. And when they were there, they needed to buy um, uh, uh, offering animals. Okay? So Jesus was not condemning the sale of the animals. He was, he was condemning where it was taking place. They had turned the, 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 the temple into a place of merchandise. So that's the first thing. What's the second thing here? Because Jesus does something here that is absolutely critical to the whole story and, and, and helps, should help us define the word meekness. What does Jesus do before he goes into the temple? Okay, the understanding is that he goes to the temple, he sees what's going on, then he, the, the understanding is that he leaves and then comes back. What does he do when he leaves? Okay, he makes a whip or a scourge. It says it right here. Um, and when he had made a scourge of small cords, now, I've never made a whip before, okay? I, I never have. Now, I, I don't know about you, but to me, it would take a little bit of time to be able to make a whip, don't, wouldn't you think? So what did Jesus do? He goes to the temple. He sees what's going on. He leaves he makes a whip and he goes back and he cleans out the temple. Jesus is not out of control. He's not, he's not losing it as we would say today. But what is he doing? He's keeping his, his emotions in check because this is his father's house. And he is highly offended by what is taking place in the house of God. And what does he do? He withdraws himself, keeps his emotions in check, makes a whip, goes back, cleans out the temple. To me, that is the ultimate example of meekness. Yes, ma'am. I, we we have we we have what we have here. I don't believe he did. I think he he knew. I, I this is just my thinking. He knew that they knew what they were doing was wrong, so there was really no need for conversation. It's like catching your kid with his hand in the cookie jar. They know, you know. What are you going to do? <laughs> but it, we don't know. We don't know. All we know is that he went in and did it. Um, <clears throat> but it's, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is important that we understand why he did it. John chapter 2 and verse 16, it says, And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. See, why, why was Jesus being so protective of the temple? Was he, you know, it was because they were misusing it. 
meekness. Again, Jesus was not suggesting that the sell of the animals and the exchanging of the money. Uh, okay, let me ask you, let me, before I say that, why, why were there money changers there? Okay, they had money coming in from all over the world, and they had to be able to buy the, buy the animals and so on and so forth. And so they, you know, just like when we travel travel abroad, we have to exchange money. And and uh, so, <clears throat> you know, the the uh, the guys that would exchange money obviously made profit on on the money exchange. But they would. So Jesus had no problem with what they were doing. It was where they were doing it. It's so important we get a hold of that. Meekness is not weakness. It is strength. Augustine wrote this, Do you wish to possess the earth? Because is not not what he says says here in verse 5. It says, uh, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He says, Do you wish to possess the earth? Beware then, lest it possess you. I like that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I have a question for you, and I've been I've been thinking on it, and I, I don't know if I have my my words, my terminology quite right yet. But let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus would turn over the world to people who were wimpy? Isn't it going to take strong people? Because that's what he says here. You're going to inherit the earth. Won't it take strong people of great character to rule the world? Do you see how these are these layers are starting to develop? The character that is needed. When we when we realize that in ourselves we are nothing and we get to the point where we where our sin not only we realize it breaks the heart of God, but it breaks our heart too. A good example of this would be the, um, the, what we call the prodigal son. When he finally hit bottom, what did he say? He said, I'm going to go back and go to work for my dad. And he came home and he tells his dad, he says, Dad, I have sinned against you and God. That's a broken, that's a broken spirit. That's somebody who can mourn over their sin. Blessed are the meek. Those are the people who have that quiet strength that once we realize that we can do nothing on our own, that we totally need God, and that our sin not only breaks the heart of God, but it should break our heart, that's when we can have that inner strength from the Holy Spirit. 
and we can we can be meek. Let me close with this. A.W. Tozer once wrote this. The meek the meek man is <clears throat> not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own in, uh, inferior, inferiority. Rather, he may be <clears throat> in his moral mi- moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled by himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows that he is as weak and helpless as God declares him to be. But paradoxically, he knows that at the same time that he might uh, that he is in the sight of God of more importance than than the angels in himself nothing but in God everything that is his motto i like what the way he closes this this sentence in himself nothing but in God everything that's meekness Jesus is a perfect example. And as I have studied this idea of meekness many, many times, I I feel like I am doing a very poor job trying to explain this word. But if we will, first and foremost, understand that we are nothing and that he is everything, and we are dependent on him and we will our hearts will break and we will mourn over our sin that is when he can start working and doing great things in our lives that is when meekness can take over in our lives you see how the layers work let's pray dear lord thank you for this day thank you for your love and for the work you do in our lives and i am so thankful and grateful for your love and We ask, dear God, that you would do a mighty work in our lives and that you would help us, dear God, as we try to wrap our head around these concepts and these these principles that we're learning. Lord, help us. Help us, dear God, to see and to know how that you are everything and we are nothing. We desperately need you. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.